Oh, hey, oh, Sopranos podcast fans. Did you know that we're available on all of your favorite social media platforms? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that shit. We got it. At the Sopranos podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And at Sopranos podcast, no the, on Twitter. Please like us, interact with us. We're very accessible, myself, Jordan, and Paul. We love to hear from our fans. We love to hear from people who enjoy The Sopranos as much as we do or from people who don't like The Sopranos. Maybe you want to tell us to go fuck ourselves. That's fine, too. Just interact with us and like us in the process. If you really like the show, the best thing you can do for us is subscribe on your various platforms. Wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google, whatever, Please subscribe to us. That helps our visibility. It helps us get new listeners. It helps bring more people into the Sopranos conversation, and that is a good thing. The best thing you can do for us, honestly, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Extremely helpful. Many of you have, and we appreciate that. But if you don't think the show is worth five stars, let us know why. I'm not going to take you out. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to take you out in the back of the bing and slap you around Tony Soprano style. But I would like to know what would make the show better for you, more enjoyable for you, the listeners. So please, hit us up. Podcast at gmail.com. Hit us up there with any comments, suggestions, ideas, thoughts. We would love to hear from you. In the meantime, we look forward to bringing you a nice, heaping portion of Audio Sunday Dinner every other Sunday, and we will continue to do so through the rest of the series. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy this episode. Bada bing. Sopranos podcast fans, we are back. Season 2, episode 5, entitled The Gentleman Caller. There's no such thing as total control. That's a quote from Dr. Melfi in this Season 2, Episode 5 of The Sopranos, entitled Big Girls Don't Cry, written by the great Terrence Winter and directed by Tim Van Patten. This is certainly an A-team, if you ask me. Terrence Winter and Tim Van Patten are legendary. Guys, what an episode here. Oh, Um, yeah. Big Girls Don't Cry. This one... Hooked me from minute one. We got uh, Furio coming to America. Chris is taking an acting class for writers. Tony is losing his temper. And Melfi is considering taking Tony back. Let's go around the table here as we do. First of all, I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mantini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we're going to give first reactions. I never start these off, so maybe I'll start off first reactions. Oh, wow. Here. Okay, yeah, go yeah. for it. Yeah. Shift the fucking format here. We're in season two, baby. To me, this is an episode uh, noticeably about men struggling to find ways and outlets to express themselves. The title of the episode, Big Girls Don't Cry, of course, a reference to Frankie Valli's song of the same title, Big Girls Don't Cry, which plays in one of the early scenes in Artie Bucco's restaurant, Return of Artie Bucco, by the way. Very exciting. And uh, to me, it's about these guys who, you know, we have scenes between Tony and Hesh talking at cross purposes tony needs an outlet he can't find one he wants to be the strong silent type he wants to be like furio in an episode where furio's coming back christopher can't deal with this uh his emotions and ends up blowing up in an acting class in a in a destructive way he doesn't have an outlet for his innermost feelings to quote adriana and what ends up happening is we get a demonstration in furio's first job in america of what exactly 
the outlet is for the strong silent type mm-hmm. in his act of brutality. And I, I just felt for a lot of these men who, in a way, have this kind of self-imposed silence that they can't, they, they can't express themselves, they have no outlet, they don't know how to deal with their emotions, and they're looking for ways out and have trouble navigating those ways out. That's what this episode said to me. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, we see a lot of frustration in this episode from, yeah, I agree, mostly our male characters, our male leads in particular, also from Dr. Melfi. This is an episode about not necessarily having an outlet for those things inside of you, right? I mean, Tony is really feeling that missing part of himself. He wants badly to be back in Dr. Melfi's therapy, um, but can't really admit that to himself. I mean, he's already tried. He's directly tried. He's asked her. She's turned him down. She's feeling the guilt in a major way, as she reveals in multiple scenes with Dr. Kupferberg, Elliot. And we see this journey mirrored in Chris, right? It's not just Tony that's having a hard time finding a home for his feelings. He's smashing phones. He's yelling at people. He's trying to talk to Hesh as kind of like a surrogate therapist. It's not really working out for him because mm. Hesh is just treating him like a friend. He's tell- talking to him about his his life and his situation. And Christopher... We've known this already, but it's just, it's so much more confirmed in this episode that there are such dark things in his mind and he's having a hard time processing it. And I think he hoped maybe, maybe still hopes that, you know, he would be able to write it and and have a great story come out of it, out of Mm -hmm. some of his pain, his experience. But it actually sort of accidentally comes out in his acting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'll, we'll get this at the end of the episode that he doesn't necessarily like that thing that lives inside him because as an actor, you have to be vulnerable and Chris doesn't want to be vulnerable. Yes, I loved watching this episode. It was a lot of fun. I, as always, look forward to what um, our takes on it would be. Also, watching an episode where one of the key storylines takes place in an acting class is fun because uh, we've all been there Yeah, to some degree. We know at least that mm-hmm. landscape. And to see one of our guys, this this gangster, interact in that space <laughs> is a lot of fun. There's very funny moments, of course. To me, this episode was definitely, as you guys say, about these outlets, about the frustration, particularly among male characters, and also, I think, keyed into, I guess, emotional needs that these characters are seeking out in different forums, particularly Chris and Tony. Tony coming back into Melfi's sphere of influence around the same time that in this other story, Chris is sort of spiraling away a bit from the sphere of influence in terms of being a gangster. It's not accidental the way that some of these situations are set up, starting off with this very skeevy, gross-looking part of the underworld. Mm. No wonder it seems distasteful to Chris and why he's looking for something else. Mm. So I connected with all of that. It added up to another great one hour. And it was also, at times, distressing to watch this episode. It wasn't easy to watch Tony really start to decompensate and act out as these elements in his life continue to prod and poke him. It was a very emotionally upsetting episode. My wife and I did not feel good watching... We felt good in the... When you're able to remove yourself from it and look at it as a piece of art, you feel good because it's brilliantly done. And worth noting, by the way, that this is a wonderful episode for Michael Imperioli. He really knocked it out of the park. And this episode, more than perhaps any others that we've seen so far, makes Christopher an extremely endearing character. Even though he does quite a few horrible things in this episode, he's endearing because there is something there that wants to climb out. And... There's almost a glimmer of hope. If he had chosen 
to sit at, to quote David Mamet, to sit in front of his typewriter slash computer and bleed at that last moment and really be vulnerable, maybe he has something. He's not a smart guy, but very clearly there is something deep going on with him, and he just bottles it up. He throws it in a bag, dumps it right in the trash. Yeah. You know, one of the most rewarding things in terms of rewatching The Sopranos is to watch it through the lens of folks who come from being used to almost uh, a lower or a simpler existence in life, trying to wrestle with the tools of a heightened existence in terms of uh, art, music, literature, uh, therapy. Mm. You know, for Tony, his road to understanding himself hopefully is through therapy, but therapy, you know, uh, psychology is, is a science. This is not something that Tony understands inherently, but the more he comes to understand the process, uh, you know, he understands the key to sort of unlocking himself. But waiting inside are more and more complex corridors within himself. Chris is going to find that too, but he's going to find this through the world of writing, the world of film, the world of, of theater. Uh, and these are journeys that, you know, very, very light spoiler, we're going to continue to see both those paths, you know, throughout the show. Well said. Let's start with the opening of, this, of the episode where we get this, uh, the groundwork laid. Chris is showing up to... He's running, we find out that he's running late for something Adriana got for him. She's not going to get her deposit back if, if you know, <laughs> that he doesn't show up or they're late. And he's at this tanning salon that's very clearly the uh, whorehouse, an yeah. um, illegal um, prostitution operation. And Chris just goes back there and there's this scuzzy looking couple running it. And he's making like a little model car. Chris, the money's short, has to rough him up. And this is this little plot at the tanning salon is a little bit of a spine for this episode to grow off of. What do we think of the way this started and um, how the episode kind of got rolling? Part of the framing for me is that the cruelty is just so routine in their lives. And I, I feel like it must wear on Chris over time. Mm. You can see how much he doesn't want to be there and how much he doesn't want to be doing this. Mm. Um, I don't think that's just anxiety about going to the acting class. I think that's just like... Uh, I have to walk through this disgusting place and deal with this disgusting man whose whose nose is full of coke and of course the envelope is fucking light and I have to beat him and deal with his wife and he's just he's getting really beaten down. He wants a way out. This is like our big reminder that like Chris can't be doing this forever. He doesn't want to do this. Mm. That's a great read on that scene. I thought it was a perfect setup for that reason because it's something that is crowding in on what will be this new venture. We see that his attentions are divided in a problematic way, we're not seeing something that we usually see. We're seeing kind of the workaday life of the gangster making collections, and it is distasteful. So we see exactly what I think, as Jordan pointed out, what's missing for Chris and what's kind of wearing him down and looking for, again, this new outlet. I also think I don't recall the guy's name. Maybe it's Dominic, who he's collecting the that money from. That sounds right, yeah. What the fuck, Dominic? Yep. Exactly. That guy is a clownish version of Chris. I think. That is how Chris sees himself in his nightmares. Part of this underworld, non-effectual, led around by the nose by his wife, coke habit, which Chris also has, which he tends to in this episode, and a stupid hobby yeah. that Chris then shits on by making the guy crunch it with his ass. That is, this episode is about identity, in part, and role-playing. I think Chris sees a nightmare version of himself in this guy. <laughs> and finds it so distasteful that then he's finding the energy in this new space to express himself, even though he's a bit tentative about it. Mm. Very well said. 
And then the next scene, we get the return of Artie Bucco. I believe this is the first Oh, yeah, I think so, at long last. Yeah, in season two. It's great to see him in the new Vesuvio. <laughs> but also the return of Charmaine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually, uh, I don't know if I'm going to mention that in... I think in the next episode, I want to, something I want to talk about with specifically with Artie and Charmaine. Um, but yeah, yeah, Artie and Charmaine are back. Charmaine is just as abrasive as ever. But again, it comes from that place of like, don't let these guys get too close to you. And I can't fault her for that, even though she's very abrasive uh, in the way she goes about it. And Artie is, uh, yeah, well, I can't turn down a four top. <laughs> anyone who's ever worked at a restaurant you know understands that uh idea like well they're, you know they're a four top and he's serving them quail the there's a very funny interaction or he's kind of having fun with the guys paulie's mocking the fact that it's quail and can we talk about that what is up with this this is now at least twice because i'm also counting uh uh our, our trip to italy where paulie requested just simple spaghetti and and red sauce <laughs> Do they not want better food? Does, is that that's something they aspire to? Because quail stuff with fennel sauce, that sounds delicious. Oh, like, it does sound delicious. Of course delicious. I would love to try that. I would love to tell Artie Bucco, just go nuts, bring out whatever you want. Right. Because, you know, Artie Bucco, he's a creative guy. I, I think uh, in a lot of ways, this interaction illustrates what we're seeing in other elements of the episode is that these are not people who grew up in a creative environment. These are not people who are used to outlets and... A chef is as much an artist as he is a scientist. Absolutely. And Artie is expressing himself. His outlet is in the kitchen. He will cook. He Yeah, I'm sure he makes a nuts marinara sauce. I'm sure his meatballs are dynamite. But he can also make quail with fennel. And, and you know, he's trying to broaden, your, broaden their horizons. Let them try new things. And these guys just want fucking, you know, we're big Italian guys. Just bring us the pasta what is top this? shelf mozzarella what? yeah well, exactly what the fuck is yeah. this you know what this place needs cheese <laughs> just more mozzarella cheese great uh, but we do find out an important bit of information uh, and uh, another storyline in this episode Furio is coming over from we knew he was coming based on what happened in Commendatory but his arrival is being prepared for Tony asks Artie if Furio can have a job making buffalo mozzarella I know that <laughs> we always talk on the show about the missing scene one scene that's not in this episode that I would love, I would love to have seen, is Artie having to tell Charmaine. Oh God! That he's hiring a gangster from Italy. Right. <laughs> Who's gonna fucking smoke in the kitchen? By the yeah, way. Yeah. yeah. That scene. I imagine that is his first day, when when she like just puts the fucking, the the ashtray right in front of him. Mind watching your ashes, please. And I almost imagine that Artie didn't tell her until that morning. And. <laughs> That sounds right. Because <laughs> I would be afraid to tell her if I just agreed to hire this guy just for so he has a legitimate source of income. This is also the scene in which the song Big Girls Don't Cry is playing, mm -hmm. uh, under, underscoring the scene. So that's where they got their title from for the uh, the episode, yep. Big Girls. Not the last time they will use a full Frankie Valli song in, in the episode titles. Uh, right. Frankie Valli, of course, legendary Italian singer, and he's from New Jersey too, which is, you know, he... he, he Frankie Valli, the show is centered in Jersey. Frankie Valli is a big Jersey cultural icon. Uh, this is not the last we will hear or see. And um, Frankie Valli just has a big impact, actually, on the kind of cultural surrounding of this show, uh, as we'll see more and more. But, yeah, uh, so Big Girls Don't Cry is actually playing on the radio. Yeah. The key line in that song, I think, particularly with respect to this episode, is Big Girls Don't Cry, that's just an alibi. That's not true. Of course they do. 
And of course, we have this emotional underpinning to our lives, and we have these secrets. And that's what these characters in different scenarios are dealing with. Yeah. And in general, we have characters who are so emotionally stunted, like having a hard time expressing themselves. So it's a bit, it's a little on the nose because you know it's big girls don't cry. It'd be the same thing as big boys don't cry. Like right. you know, you're you're a man. You don't confess to a therapist. You don't you don't you know express your feelings in acting class. Really, not real feelings. You know, it's a, it kind of goes to that. And on the subject of of gender, there, you know, I did mention the men in this episode, but you guys did bring up of it is Melfi too. Sure, she we see her in therapy. And they have a very crucial exchange in one of their scenes, uh, Melfi and Elliot, where she's like, I think it'll be seeing it will be very therapeutic for me. And he says, it's not supposed to be therapeutic for you. This is your therapy here. Melfi is struggling with finding an outlet, and she's the most equipped in the show to find an outlet. And right. She's you know, more than any of these guys. She has some kind of emotional awareness and uh, experience in this field. Yeah, absolutely. We even see it in a smaller degree. Again, they keep... Uh, they keep kind of, every episode now, they're kind of touching down on Pussy and how his snitching is going. And even in his scene, these two guys are using each other as surrogate therapists. Pussy is is bitching to Skip. Skip's bitching about the new FBI agent who's, you know, getting all this uh, attention or, or, or something. But the point is that, you know, these two guys are airing their grievances with each other and having, you know, it's like a snitch and an FBI agent taking a break from the business of the day and... Using each other as surrogate therapists. It's just all over this episode, people struggling to find outlets, and that makes for really awesome drama. Absolutely. So we get this um, meeting at Lou Costello Park between uh, Pauly and Tony. Some very funny dialogue here. Terrence Winter really nailed this scene. The Malamars thing. <laughs> Pauly. I know, I know it was you. <laughs> Fucking Malamars. Thought you lost your mind. Pauly's like, <laughs> What the fuck? Is he serious? Like, his face is really funny there. And this is a scene that now speaks directly to the plot. There will be a restructuring of the family, yeah. right? Uh, Tony is concerned about how much heat is coming down on him. Uh, as we get from a news clip earlier in the episode, mm-hmm. people are very, very aware Tony is now the boss of the North Jersey mob. Uh, he needs to take some heat off, which means he needs to put more people between him and the operation itself. Yep. So now, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, is it now that Silvio and Polly will share kind of the duties as underboss together? It's, is that it, yeah. something? Is that a thing that happens even? It seems to be the case that he has set it up in a way that like... I imagine it almost for purposes of like just insulating himself that he has set right, it up. Yeah. In this, yeah, yeah. That he has set it up in this way. I don't know. They don't get into the nitty gritty as like, are titles changing? Who's what? Is Pauly a captain? What is this? Uh, but it, it just seems basically like Tony will only do business directly now with Junior up above and then Syl and Pauly. No one else gets to him. And, right. and he specifically mentions that Pussy and Furio report to Tony, you know, Pauly and Silvio directly. Right, which I think we can understand even in advance of the scene, Pussy's frustration at that. I mean, he's been with the crew just as long as those guys, possibly mm-hmm. longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's essentially being passed over for a promotion, a bump, as they say, and, uh, when uh, Furio comes over. Exactly, and in that scene later on when they're having lunch at Vesuvio and Paulie asks him to get up from the table uh, and keep yeah. his food warm, it's a rough scene. Even just Pussy is kind of separated from the top level visually, too. The costume designers did a wonderful thing here where Paulie is wearing this beautiful tie right. and suit and you know impressive looking. Johnny Sack, Johnny looks Sack great. always yeah. looks great yeah. that that's no surprise and puss is kind of like his shirt's like a little open sloppily you can see a little bit of his undershirt no right. tie and so uh, even the aesthetic is now suggesting that there's a degree of separation between pussy and upper level 
What can happiness. he really expect, though? So much. First of all, as as we the audience know, he's a fucking snitch. Mm. You know. So, but like, what does he expect? Does he does he expect he was going to get a promotion? You know what I mean? So I understand why he's offended, but also like, dude, of course you're you're the least reliable person on this crew by yeah. far. Well, and I think that's ultimately why he would bitch to Skip instead of going to Tony. If he weren't a snitch and if he didn't just disappear for what we're led to believe at least months, right? He might have gone to Tony. It's a tone. What's up? Uh, what's going on? I'm big pussy. We've been together. You know, we've been together forever. But he knows he can't really pitch because he gets it in his head. He knows. First of all, he knows that he's snitching. So it's like, all right, well, I'm. I don't want to push my luck here. And then also, it's like, yeah, I was gone. I'm not. You know. But it, it very clearly eats at him. He doesn't want to get up from that table. And he's also foolish. I think that in his emotional frustration, given maybe the lies that he has to tell and the line and the 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 thin line he has to walk, he's reacting in a way that isn't particularly smart at least mm. at first he's alienating furio which you can see Polly react to not good furio for his part especially in a in an episode about playing these different roles furio is good everywhere he's good with the kids he's good with the wives he's good beating people up when pussy tries to provoke him stone face yeah yep he's good all over yep uh another very funny line in the scene when <laughs> Tony tells Polly off the bat, our friend Furio's coming over from the other side. The other side, of course, being slang. Uh, I want to touch on two bits of slang, new mob slang we get in this episode. The other side refers to Italy, and somebody refers to Furio at one point as a zip, which is Italian mob slang for, like, someone from the old country who, like, a, you know, a younger, usually a younger mobster from the old country. Who's but there. a derogatory term. Yeah. A not zip a, is not a nice thing to say. I don't think so. Uh, but... It, it's got a kind of casualness to it. It's not like... I, I don't think if Furio heard somebody call him that, he would even maybe know what it is. But it's sort of like, yeah, the new guy from Italy. It's 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 that kind of thing. So, yeah. So, oh, the, the funny line. He said, he tells Paulie that Furio's coming. And Paulie says, what, to see what indoor plumbing looks like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice callback. So, nice callback call back to Commendatory. Paulie's yeah. horrid disgust at the... <laughs> half a toilet he stumbled into that nice restaurant to touch on in these first couple of beats there's going to be payoffs from it later on but interestingly in these first couple of beats as tony is setting things up for furio a legit job restructuring the hierarchy these are all business moves and they're all smart they all seem good they all seem sound so generally first couple of beats of this episode for tony business going well Mm -hmm. then these other more personal issues creep in, yep. and his emotions start to get out of whack, which mm-hmm. is a very interesting way to set it up. And also what he's doing in trying to, in bringing Furio over, what he is in part trying to do is insulate himself from too much attention. Stay tuned mm. for the scene on the boat <laughs> for how Tony will then completely yeah, fuck exactly. up his own strategy. Yeah, so well, let's keep progressing. Then we're on a thread here. I mean, there's other scenes in between, but let's 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 while we're on the subject, the next time we see Tony, a couple of scenes later, it's a scene where he finds out that Janice has taken out a loan on the house. Yeah, and he rips the phone out of the wall and tosses, almost hits AJ with it. No, that was his new job at Radio Shack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he has the phone enough for durability. I gotta say that little that is, and I love pointing these out because. Any other show simply would have had the scene where Tony throws the phone, it almost hits them, Carmela dresses him down, he, re- he Tony feels embarrassed, and we're on to the next beat. 
But The Sopranos just takes that little moment for Tony to address AJ just very briefly. And a, a funny but also sad and pathetic moment. Yeah. Where he's like, yeah, I just, uh, you know, he's trying to make a joke, but AJ's very clearly like, uh, whatever, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And it's just that they took the time to give us that little chunk. And those little beats, they matter in, in aggregate because... Yeah. They just make the world feel more real. That's something a dad who lost his temper would do is try to make some corny joke out of it. And because we know Tony and AJ, it also has more context to it in a broader sense. And I just, I like that moment a lot. I really, it's funny. No, it's, it is a nice moment. It's a nice touch. But yeah, and then he goes to Hesh and to, to continue off of what Paul was just saying, he says to Hesh, any way you want to measure it, things are good. I'm firmly in charge. So why am I ripping phones out in front of my kid? And I love that he also mentions, uh, you know, you never seen Carlo or Lucky, uh, Carlo Gambino, of course, Lucky Luciano. He's talking about the legendary old mob bosses, you know, ripping phones out of the wall and losing their temper. Which, by the way, I don't know that that's necessarily true. I think that's probably more legend. I bet a lot of them had tempers. I'm sure. But it's, it's about, he wants to project power and he feels... Out of control, uh, to an extent. Yeah, this is also where Hesh will then mention that Johnny Boy also had these issues of anxiety, panic attacks, passing out, uh, hitting his head on a cigarette machine one time, you know. And, and Tony, I don't know, does this make him feel better or worse about himself? I don't know. Is Does he feel worse than that he feels like he has no control over the, the hereditary nature of how his mind works? Or does he feel better that he's not alone in this? I, I don't know. He does think it's important enough to bring up again. Well, very interesting. I want to mention this because it said, first of all, it's our pull quote. There's no such thing as total control. Tony wants to control of his environment. And yeah. actually, I'm watching a serial killer documentary series on Amazon that talks about how psychopaths and dangerous, violent people need to have control of their environment. Like Ted Bundy's last interview on Death Row, you know, when he's like about to die the next day, is like looking around, making sure he's knowing, he knows what's going on with everybody in the room, even at that point, because they like to be in total control. So I can't imagine Tony getting a revelation about his father having anxiety attacks and that being passed on to him and something he may not be able to prevent for AJ is gotta be something that eats at him immediately and thoroughly. Paul, any thoughts on that? The first thought is uh, about these sequences with Hesh. First of all, they are funny as hell. Yeah. They're really, they're great. The acting's great. Jerry Adler as as Hesh, always brilliant. Um, (laughs) Tony is frustrated at the time because, we actually skipped ahead here, but we'll come back to the scene on the boat Mm -hmm. where he's uh, beat the shit out of this, uh, beat up this Russian guy. Um, or grabbed his testicles, and th- he complains to Hesh, I have to run like a bitch from my own leisure time activities. He's also interrupting Hesh's leisure time activities with this sexy-looking black chick, and Hesh is not ready for that. Hesh isn't a therapist. Yeah. Hesh, th- there's a little bit of sophisticated anti-Semitism here where Tony, I guess like his mother, thinks this is a racket for the Jews, and just <laughs> thinks that his one Jewish cohort is going to be able to speak a language to him. But no, Tony's not, Tony's not ready in that moment to hear about his dad. He's not ready to process it, and he, and he can't just talk to Hesh because Hesh has his own problems. Hesh has his own life. So the way that I took these scenes was generally that they're in these, they're in these very nice settings too, kind of plum set up with Hesh's nice patio in the backyard, Hesh's little study, but it's not giving Tony what he needs. And it's a very smart bit of writing because 
I can see how Hesh would be the only one, at least in the circle, that Tony would go to. Mm. He's not going to go to Sylvia or Polly with this, obviously. But Hesh not being up to it underlines, I think, the specialness of his connection with Melfi. Mm. Yeah. And leads us back yeah. to that frame where at the end of the episode he's finally back in her office. I, I love that little exchange they have where uh, Tony asks Hesh if, you know, or, or Hesh says something to the effect of, uh, they didn't know how to treat that shit back then. You know, they called it a condition. And Tony kind of is like, they're not much better now. <laughs> I just, I, I like, that was a nice bit of dialogue. I liked that there. Yeah. Uh, just felt real to me. There was a scene uh, in between, as far as following Tony's journey through this episode, there was a scene in the middle there that we that we brushed over I'd like to touch on now while we're on the topic of Tony losing his temper. And also because we didn't see Richie April at all in Commendatore. Tony goes over immediately to his mother's house to chastise Janice. Richie answers the door. Without pants. Yeah. <laughs> Come on in. I'll make you breakfast. You make you want eggs? <laughs> and they have a scene. Tony just cannot not poke at this guy now. There's, yeah. there's, there's just... Speaking there's, of poke, Richie holds a fork in a very menacing way in this scene. I'm oh, like, you come for his fucking eyeball, man? What's yeah. going on? And they must... What, what I love, too, is... Um, they must have shot that scene several times. That's how it works in television production. You shoot things multiple times. You take the best take. I love that they took a take where as he's walking over to Tony, like a, just a, a hunk of egg just drips off of it and hits the floor. They have the sound effect in there. And he's just like, you know, very menacing. He's talked before about crazy enough to put an eye out. And he's got this fork and he tells Tony, you know, you crossed the line on me once, Anthony, and I held my tongue. You know, all due respect. I know she's your sister, but all due respect, back the fuck off. And Tony's right there with him. These guys are not in a good place. <laughs> Tony reminds him of Beansy. But uh, I just, what's interesting about this scene in comparison to Toodle Fucking Ooh, where we last saw Richie, is Richie kind of was a source of escalation in that episode. And this one, Richie, I don't want to call them olive branches necessarily, but Richie's like very calm at first. He lets him in. He offers to make him eggs, and Tony is now the one like, fuck you, making little comments. Uh, there are men in the can better looking than my sister was one that made me laugh. Each his own. Each his own. <laughs> and Richie, of course, keeping that calm, cool delivery. When he gets more menacing, he gets quieter. Tony gets louder. Throws, you know. Again, Richie embodies some of these qualities, perhaps, that he uh, Tony feels he's missing. Richie just projects power, even though he's half the size of Tony. Because he's just so fucking in control of what he's doing. He'll do out-of-control things, but he is very much in control of his emotions. Which is, with Tony being so out of control, why Richie is such a potential threat. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, it's the perfect complication to come out of this because I think the audience is generally ready after that sequence where Tony smashes the phone... For him to, at some level, go over, rip Janice's head off, scream at her. And mm -hmm. so then the unexpected thing where Richie opens the door in his boxer shorts is so great. Because then it, we still see, as Chris, you eloquently pointed out, the key factor. How this affects Tony. How it affects his emotional stability. And what he'll be trying to find in, e in an equilibrium of sorts going forward. Um, there's not much more with Richie or Janice here, I don't think, but they didn't need any more in this episode. Mm -hmm. Just this one sequence was enough. It just sets Tony off. By the end of that one scene, he's he's acting as though he doesn't even give a shit. Yeah. She's your problem now. And he storms out. Yep. So. Ozzy and fucking Harriet here. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. 
Yeah, and, and it also solidifies that Richie and Janice are more than just a flash in a pan again. They're, they are, they're, I mean, he's staying the night. He's offering to give her money to, to make sure the house doesn't get, you know, that she yeah, can to make cover it, the To make it inhabitable for Ma. I, I mean, how much more inhabitable does the house need to be? I mean, really, what specific, I don't know. I don't know what she's thinking of doing. Obviously, she's trying to milk some money out of the house. Yes, uh, that's she's just, you know Tony calls her out immediately. All oh, fake fake disabilities don't count as begging. You know she talks about how are you gonna hold a beggar's cup. I never begged a day in my life. Great exchange, great dialogue. Tony and and Janice just crackle every scene they're together. And then speaking of crackling, we <laughs> the next beat in the Tony story in this episode past the uh, Hesh scene that we were just talking about. He's on a boat with Arena, and this scene, I can't not laugh at the guy's outfit. <laughs> Tony's like, you got a problem besides those fucking pants? Oh, uh, but I, I, you know what the most distracting thing to me in that scene is? Irina wearing swimmies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Irina's wearing swimmies. She's a grown woman in swimmies. <laughs> very funny. They're very weird. I like that uh, he lectures her about the, the stuff she's feeding the ducks, and... Uh, she says something to him in Russian. He says, yeah, kazoo you. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Uh, yeah, nice little bit of uh, symbolism coming back there with the ducks. Uh, mm-hmm. Him talking about, I had you know the family of mallards for two months in my pool, reminding us of that fact, but also she's feeding the ducks what will probably be poison for those ducks. Uh, yeah. You know, doesn't really take much uh, analysis here to come across that, yes, this girl who is, you know, not the family type. You know, yeah, and she, also directly a, a toxic influence right. on Tony's she, home life. That's right. She does not nourish the family. She will do something mm-hmm. harmful to it. You know, yeah, very good pull, Jordan. This uh, scene to me seemed like quintessential Sopranos to me for a number of reasons. One is that not too long before this, in the beat where we're at the Lou Costello Memorial, Tony and Polly, again talking about how he has to shield himself from, say, the government using RICO predicates on him, trying to squeeze the business as he says he says in my position a guy like a guy like me in my position could do a dime for jaywalking mm-hmm. then he publicly assaults this guy on a boat <laughs> with witnesses so it's the quintessential sopranos these characters are fucking ridiculous but i felt for him i felt for him in his emotional response so uh, there was that quality but it is a brutal scene like he just like he assaults this guy and then it, like they just have to escape there's people around it's like this is rough man so I felt that it was all coming together in this way. But it is a funny scene. I was telling Chris earlier, I think the line when he goes up to the guy, he says, you have a problem besides those fucking pants? Yeah, yeah. That line made me laugh. You <laughs> yep. Know? Also a reminder of Tony as a physical threat. I mean, he doesn't know this guy. I mean, this Russian guy could be a fucking black belt. He doesn't know anything yeah. about this guy. He's like, doesn't matter. I'm going to go up and I'm going to squeeze his fucking balls. Yeah. Doesn't care. He's it's a very impulsive. I would be afraid to do that to anybody just because you don't know. Like you said, he could have a gun. Right. Like you- but just Tony doesn't care. He just thinks like, yeah, I don't think, does he even take the time to size this guy up? I wonder, does his rage just take over completely and it doesn't matter in that moment? He's like, no, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to squeeze his fucking balls. Yeah. You know? It's a short beat just after that happens when he goes back to his boat, the Stugats, and you, I think you see him sort of realize what he's done, right? He says, fuck. Yeah. And then they have to get out of there. Another funny bit where she's like, you always have to ruin everything. Move your ass. <laughs> you know. uh, Paul, for our viewers who may not be, no, uh, Stugatz means... What does it mean? Like an idiot? <laughs> uh, your balls? I think it's balls. I, I'm going to actually double check that. Hold on. Stugat. Well, there you go. <laughs> My testicles. <laughs> yeah, the translation. Yeah. My testicles. 
<laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. The exact translation, I mean, like, Stugatz, the name of Tony Soprano's boat, means, quote, this dick in English. <laughs> it's a southern Italian dialect, so that's funny. It's, it's definitely balls or dick. Or yeah, Stugatz just means, ah, fuck, my dick. You know, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like, right here, you know. <laughs> so that's for those of you who didn't know what Stu God's meant now you know also another little detail they're always great about the little details on this show to your point he talks extensively about keeping a low profile insulating himself not only does he do this in broad daylight not only does he take an incredibly impulsive action that could have immediate deadly consequence ruins his nice day with arena but they thought and Made it like there, if you look in the background during this scene, which is hard to do because it's a great scene and you're watching what Tony's doing. There is just a normal white bread Jersey Shore family just right across from this, just like with cut red cups in their hands, just like watching this happening. Like holy shit, you know. Yeah. So it's like there's a ton of people there. Yeah, it's just it's a completely ridiculous thing for him to have done, and. He did it, <laughs> and, and he realized that how stupid it was, and even Tony, who is, you know, Mr. Mob Boss, has to scurry off down the dock after he does this. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Furio in this episode. Uh, we The reason I bring it up now is because it also kind of intersects with uh, our three separate storylines sort of intersect at the party. We have Chris there and Furio there, Pussy there, and uh, Furio's here in Italy, I, I, here in New Jersey, and I love that... Uh, line where Chris asks, was he on vacation? And Paulie's like, yeah, he saw a travel poster for sunny New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> and then Tony, of course, I love that the line he extends to Chris too. Uh, you know, Chris says, uh, I didn't get the memo. And Tony says, well, would you have read it if you got it? Kind of commenting on the fact that Chris can be a little aloof and unreliable. And of course, said during an episode where he's off doing his own thing, which we're going to talk about soon. But, uh, yeah, it, it's good, and Furio's here. We um, bring up the tanning salon. Tony's, like, mad that they still are coming up short. Chris says, you want me to go take care of this? And Tony gets an idea. No, no, no. Leave him alone, you know. But we also get Furio in his element. As you said, Paul, he's interacting with the party guests. He's charming. He's talking about his favorite TV shows. That fucking shirt or vest or whatever that was. <laughs> great, great wardrobe. Go yes. On. But um, they made me very excited in that short scene that Furio is in New Jersey now. Absolutely. Uh, are we ready to talk about the tanning salon return with Furio, or do we want to move on to something else? Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about that. Why not? We're, we're talking about Tony and his temper, and we're talking about Furio now. Yeah, I think so, we've touched down on Furio. He throws him this party, kind of welcoming him to the family, or whatever mm-hmm. you want to say. And then the next time we see Furio is that, yeah, Tony is putting him to work at the same tanning salon slash brothel that we had seen in the first scene in the episode. And um, uh, Tony is getting this vicarious thrill with uh, Furio being kind of set loose on these people who refuse to pay. I think there's also a little bit of touching here on on the scene in Commendatory where Tony remembers that Furio was violent towards a woman in the in the street towards the mother of a boy who had set off some firecrackers mm-hmm. and uh he knows that there's a woman who's being antagonistic towards the debt that they owe the family so he's thinking yeah furia will take care of her too and this guy is such a fucking force oh uh like, like a tornado rip he, the place. he is a tornado and he's just super super effective paul you've already acknowledged uh just a few moments ago that furia is, is good in every scene he's in he's also good at being just a brutal enforcer this is kind of exactly what tony needs 
Um, and of course, this is the scene in which Tony will get his phone call from Dr. Melfi. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just have to comment here, Pat, I have to give uh, Tim Van Pat on the back. Uh, <laughs> as uh, Tim Van Patten did a beautiful job with this tracking shot, uh, following Furio from the car, baseball bat to the glass pane, knocking out the spare glass, grabs somebody, shoots a gun in the air, slaps the woman at the front desk, gets people out, all the way to the back room. That is not easy to do, and it looks beautiful. It looks however, however long it took them to get that shot, whatever troubles they had getting it, it was fucking worth it, Tim. That was a great sequence. Very effective. Uh, and you're just watching it horrified. Like, oh my god, this guy is unbelievable. Yeah. And, and he, he gets him in the beats, back room. Beats the shit out of her. He beats the shit out of this guy. Breaks his arm. Blows off his kneecap. So casually. Just gun out. You know. Uh, he's screaming. He's picking up money. Saying shit to him in Italian. Don't worry. Don't worry. Punch. You know. Not the brocopa. Not the brocopa. Bam. Right in the mouth. He is, I mean, you, uh, wow. You, yeah. You don't want to cross this guy just, and you don't want to, you don't want to cross Tony with this guy. It's the most fascinating time that Tony could get a phone call from a straight character. Yeah. So I think yeah. a good way to approach this, uh, just from the way the episode is structured is to kind of pause here for a moment. I do want to come back to this phone call and hit Melfi's beats in the episode sure. leading yeah, up yeah. to it as well, because yeah. that's when these two kind of uh, subplots intersect here in this phone call. Sure. Uh, so we see Melfi, the first we see of Melfi is earlier on in the episode, she's with Elliot, who we've met already, and have uh, strong opinions on from just his brief <laughs> scenes. And she's describing the dream, the Wizard of Oz, they're trying to dissect that. Let's right. talk about this the first therapy scene and the subsequent therapy scenes. Let's talk about Melfi's journey up to that Yeah, so call. they are dissecting the dream from Tootlefuckanoo. Yeah. Uh, they're still dissecting that same dream where she sees Tony in the auto wreck. She's a bystander. Uh, he crashes into the truck. He is trying to go for some Prozac, but the bottle is empty. And she sees this whole dream perhaps as a call from her subconscious that she needs to help this man. Mm. And Elliot is helping her uh, dissect it. They're talking about Wizard of Oz, what memories it conjures. I love when Melfi says to him, what, Elliot, with the eyebrows already? <laughs> She's not wrong, by the way. I actually find him very condescending as mm. a therapist. Like, I kept thinking throughout his therapy scenes that, like, I, I wouldn't want him as my therapist. No. I think he's very opinionated. I think he's very condescending. And I think he does what therapists aren't really supposed to do. I think he doesn't really reserve his judgments of her. I think they're they're quite upfront, or at least visible enough for her to see plainly. To give Bogdanovich some credit as an actor, I think his lines on the page may not read as judgmental, but whether it's some kind of direction or this was the the way the actor decided to take the character, he manages to be judgmental, yeah. even though his words are not necessarily so. I think big time. I think... I don't know. I don't know what Melfi sees in him as a therapist. I don't know if there's more history between them. Was he like her professor or something at some point, being an older male? It feels field to life? me like there's know. some kind of prophet, like they know each other through, right? yeah. through being therapists. Well, and... also, she uses his first name. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Ellie, like, yeah, they it, have it, a relationship. He doesn't, that... She doesn't call him Dr. Kupferberg. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, he bothers me as a therapist. I don't like what he does in her scenes with him. But mm. I mean... In a good way. I mean, the scenes are compelling, but yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. just, I think, like, I I was putting myself in her position. I was like, fuck you, man. I, mm. When she tells him off at the end of the first therapy, I was like, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. I was uh, taken with these scenes for some similar reasons. That I think Melfi kind of likes that she can talk to this guy openly. It is an outlet for her. It's not the same as what... 
Tony obviously sees in Melfi and how far ahead of things she is with respect to him. But a key factor in this episode is that he's onto her. He knows that she's hiding something. Um, he says, watch out for sugar and sugar substitutes. He knows she's drinking. Yep. Um, I think that she, I think she storms out because <laughs> she knows he's onto something there too. Just mm-hmm. as he doesn't really buy, I don't have sexual feelings, but I have feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um, that was quite suspect as well. So, but uh, but suspect in the same way that Tony is when he says, nah, fuck it. <laughs> I'm getting by without it. No cure for life. Mm-mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So we see the spiraling back. Uh, but I think that there's something to that for Melfi as well with how she sees her feelings about him. And I think that being back in therapy with him to her is the best way to cleanse those feelings and the best way to format them in a positive light Mm. just as bullock on deadwood has to format his violence as an extension of the law so he doesn't just go kill people yeah Mm. yeah i mean melfi acknowledges she says you know seeing him again would be very therapeutic um and you've already mentioned earlier today uh in our recording that um you know it's it's not supposed to be therapeutic for her that's not how the therapy with tony's supposed to be going it's not healthy so we're seeing that confirmed what we knew from season one is that there is Something much, much deeper here, and even more than she's admitting to, because she does admit it's more than, uh, uh, I do have feelings for him on a personal level. And then she gives a wonderful line, considering the transition that we're getting here. He could be such a little boy sometimes, and then we get him in a car telling Furio to go (laughs) fuck up this guy and his wife. Yeah. Uh, and commit an immense act of brutality. Just such good shit. And yeah, she's a great cut. Yeah. And then she calls. She's very clearly... she uh, g- Good acting by Lorraine Bracco because she has a glass of wine and you can tell that this is probably her second or third before she mustered up the, the stomach to make this phone call. And uh, offers him therapy. And uh, he immediately puts on the stoic face. We know he wants therapy, but he has to posture i don't know what you know but uh nah fuck it i'm getting by without it no cure for life and she's very disappointed and she decides to leave the hour open for him and then we get their first scene back in the office in season two and what a sad interesting scene it is let's talk about how tony and melfi uh conclude this episode together Tony and Melfi are in the office, and um, it's just great to see them. The scene opens with a very long silence, which I know David Chase and and, and anyone who's been in therapy knows that that happens sometimes. There's just this kind of silence that fills the room as you think about what to say, what's on your mind, and it it fills the air. And these two actors, of course, handle it so well. And uh, so, yeah, so what do we make of the scene? She asks him, uh, they're both very direct with each other in this scene uh, in an episode where... Um, people are having trouble finding out, uh, direct outlets. She says to him, she asks him flat out, what do you hope to achieve here? And Tony tells her, I want to direct my power and my fucking anger against the people in my life that deserve it. He just watched Furio do that. And that's what he wants. And she doesn't want to, she doesn't want that for him. She says, you want to be a better gang leader, read The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And he tells her, you know what? You f- Fuck you. You know who I am. You know what I do. You called me. What do we make of this? 
It's hard to break it down. It's it's not really the reunion we wanted, is it? No. It's not... We, we don't get what we want in this scene, really. We get that they're back together. We're comforted as the viewer that, like, this relationship is now enduring. Something has been restored. But it's not like we're right back to the rhythm of season one, right? Mm. He feels very guarded. He also feels insulted. And, of course, I think it's almost like she has to earn his, his trust back. He's being honest with her, but... I think Tony's clearly harboring a lot of anger. Uh, there's a lot he just, yeah, he can't say. He can't say it yet. But he does say something uh, very interesting. He throws her right back in deep waters. And Melfi, Elliot mentions her kind of vicarious thrill. And there's some good acting uh, by Lorraine Bracco here, no surprise, when Tony is telling her flat out, you know where I was when you called last night? And he just tells her bluntly you know, everything that just happened, what Furio did. And she asked him, how did that make you feel? And he said, I wished it was me in there. And she says, given the beating or taking it. And her body language, is she's right back in deep waters with this guy. And it's um, maybe she is getting a thrill out of hearing this, but it's also horrifying. And, and she's realizing that, uh, you know, this is not going to be an easy task that she set out for herself. This is going to take an incredible amount of work. Again, role-playing, giving the beating or taking it. What this scene, as Jordan mentioned, Tony is guarded here. It's not the reunion that we wanted. And what I took from it, again, we've we've all seen this show most all the way through, trying to put myself in the position of somebody watching this for the first time. Oh, he's finally back. They're in these chairs. But it felt to me that there's a couple of beats in this scene where it says to us, it's going to have to be different this time. The terms are different because Tony... When Tony says to her, you know what, fuck you, you know who I am, you know what I do, you called me, that seems to set it up differently. But it's a two-hander scene. There's rules to two-hander scenes. You know who wins the conversation? The person who speaks last. And when she asks him that question and he thinks about it, it's like, oh, okay, this Mm. is why he's here. So that's the way I felt about it, was we're back in it, but there are new terms. And they're feeling each other out. It doesn't feel quite safe yet. Um, It's perfect to end this episode on that note. Yeah. For them, anyway, the, that beat. Absolutely. And, and it's quite a journey, and it feels... Um, it, it makes you kind of excited, but unsure of what's to come for these two. And that's right where the episode leaves you with them and wants to leave you. But now let's talk about what I consider to be uh, the feature storyline of this episode, from where I sit, in anyway. And that's Chris in this acting class and, and what's going on with Chris. Michael Imperioli has such a rich performance in this episode for many, many reasons. I'm so excited to talk about this. As an act, as Paul mentioned, a lot all of us at this, at this uh, table have been in the environment that Chris is in and are much more comfortable in it than he is. But we start the episode with the tanning salon. We talked about that. And then we get Chris showing up and we figure out what it is that Adrian has bought him as a birthday present. Uh, it's an acting for writers class. He walks in, gets chastised for being late, and uh, let's let's talk about these scenes in the acting class. The first thing I think we have to acknowledge, and we all have huge backgrounds with this, is that like therapy, there is a perception that acting class is bullshit. Yes, there is a big part of the I don't know arts population, or maybe just of the, the general population that thinks that. And the episode leans into that a little bit. There are some improv exercises or like Meisner exercises, like the A-B stuff, repetition, things like that, that can feel full of bullshit. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're not really invested and you're not connecting with that, it feels really fake. Yes. Uh, and it feels really inauthentic, which is why when Chris manages to have a breakthrough, it creates this beautiful dynamic contrast. And, you know, even just the title of this course, Acting for, for Writers or Acting for the Writer or whatever, like what a pretentious bullshit <laughs> title for a course, a course no writer I think really wants to take. Right. Uh, you know, when Chris gets up there and he says, you know, I bought that book, How to Write a Script in 21 Days. It's, uh, you know, I've had it for about a year. Yeah. And they all laugh. He wasn't making a joke. Yeah. Check out Michael Imperioli's line delivery on that. He's trying to actually talk about his struggle. And they laugh at him thinking he's made a clever joke. Not that clever. Wasn't a clever joke. Wasn't a joke. Yeah. So he's going up there and Chris can't see what we see. That his writer's block is the same thing of why he's going to be frustrated as an actor. He has a hard time with feeling, with bringing something up from himself, because those feelings are toxic, and those feelings can overwhelm him. We know that he suffers some similar things to Tony. Anxiety, depression, right? This is only going to bring it up, right? Getting involved in writing, real writing. Getting involved in acting, real acting. It causes unpleasant things to bubble up to the surface. The kind of things that he would find out in therapy if he had gone that route. Mm -hmm. Um, So acting class is actually a dangerous place for Chris. It's more dangerous than going to beat money out of somebody in a tanning salon. Mm. Yeah, I like that. And he won't acknowledge or deal with the emotions. And then he short circuits and runs out, which is what the gentleman caller does in The Glass Menagerie. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I love your comparison, Jordan, acting class to psychotherapy and the perception of it among the people who partake in it and the people who look at it from the outside. If I weren't in acting, I would look at some of the exercises and things going on in this class like, what the fuck? But it's, it's, it, it is like that. And to me, every actor has their own process. And, and like psychotherapy, there are different different styles, different ways of, of administering it. There's psychodynamic therapy. There's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's, in acting, there's there's Stanislavski. There's Meisner. There's, you know, method acting and all this other stuff. And it really, there's no one rule for it. Certain kinds of therapy work for different kinds of patients. Certain acting techniques work different for different actors. That's why some acting classes are bullshit to some actors because the technique just doesn't connect with you. Ultimately... If I had to give a secret of acting as an actor, all acting classes should strive to just get the actor to get out of their own way. You just need to connect naturally with what's on the page. That's true if you're writing. That's true if you're performing. And whatever works for you is what works to elicit a performance that is worth watching. So Chris... Asking a character like Chris Moltisanti to get out of his own way is a Herculean task. It's almost Sisyphean. And we see what it does to him this episode when the wall that he's put up begins to crack. And it's it's fascinating to watch. Love these scenes. He also, he's, he's quite naturally good at improv because improv requires actors to work with given sets of circumstances that are very simple and oftentimes making the simplest choice in improv leads to the most success. When he sees the guy dropping the oranges mm-hmm. and the acting teacher does a good job of pointing out, that that's a good notice, that's good improv. Hey, what are you doing? You're dropping your oranges. Was actually a good thing to say there. Uh, it's a shame that Chris doesn't see why he's good at improv. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's good at improv because of, of who he is. Making those simple choices are... 
you know, they're they're right they're right there for him. He doesn't have to overthink that scene. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I also think I think a big factor here. I I it could be a little bit harsh because I don't actually think Chris discovers too much in this episode. Um, I don't <laughs> think he's really capable. What I think in part happens again, not unlike the Glass Menagerie and the character that he is much more like than the one from Rebel Without a Cause is that he shows up in this group and they're not actors. They're not even writers. The guy's like, one girl's like, I moved to Hempstead, and the other one's like, I I work at, a, I sell Porsches. It's like, this is a group of misfits, like the Wingfields. This emissary from another world comes in. He has a dynamism. He has a natural charisma. And they're all like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. It's like, no, sorry. He's going <laughs> to short circuit and get the fuck out of here. He's not that good. Um, yeah. And... Again, like that—that's is in essence what happens here. And both of these characters that he potentially plays are named Jim, but the one is James Dean from *Rebel Without a Cause*, the consummate individual yeah. in the world of conformity, 1950s America. The other one that Chris, I think, sorry once again, Adriana, not a good reader of art, says maybe <laughs> he's a gentleman. He's a douchebag. I think he's right. Um, but Chris doesn't see that in himself. He takes one look at the Rebel Without a Cause script and says, Rebel Without a Cause, cool. That's what Chris is looking for. That is what he wants to project. And he, the woman says, I don't want to see a James Dean impression, but he kind of does one and gets into that moment and everybody's mesmerized because that's what he wants to project. The moment comes when you have to, again, be vulnerable and he lashes out. Let's talk about this for a second. I know everyone at this table uh, is well-read on Tennessee William. I mean, you can't study drama and not at least read a Tennessee William play at some point. Paul, I think Glass Menagerie, correct me if I'm wrong, is is that like one of your favorite plays? Absolutely. Yeah. What is the significance of, of choosing that for this episode and for this scene? Uh, just what do you make of... I had a teacher once that said drama is denial. And I think that that's a big part of it. Mm. I think that... That character, Jim, who is brought over in the short story, which is called The Gentleman Caller, and the play was originally called The Gentleman Caller. At the end, um, Laura, who's the girl who is a cripple, accuses her brother of bringing the guy home, not for her, but for him. Mm. Um, In that, the prose version, Tennessee Williams was much more upfront about the homoeroticism. Now... In this one, I think what the the significance of choosing that character, to me, this is my reading of the play, it's not everybody's, is that that character, the gentleman caller, Jim, is a loser, like everybody else. He's a winner in that house, because they want him there, and they're mesmerized by him. I think that's what Chris momentarily discovers in that world Hmm. of that acting class, is that to those people, misfits, sweet as they are, Chris is of course has a natural charisma that they don't because they didn't come from roughing up a guy who didn't have the money on time. So he, I, again, I think he wants to express that cool. And he's not, as you guys pointed out, sitting down in front of the typewriter and exposing oneself, mm. which is very painful. It's difficult to do. There's a light parallel to maybe a bit of a reach, but um, we have a similar dynamic not quite exactly the same as the circumstances in The Glass Menagerie, of course, uh, but with Richie April uh, romancing Tony's sister, 
Uh, and we have this kind of mother character, uh, you know, kind of overarching the situation. In terms of Christopher and his unresolved issues with his heroic father, Dickie Moltisanti, that's very much Tom Wingfield's relationship with his own father in The Glass Menagerie, where we have the father's picture on the mantelpiece, and he's like the, the bygone hero. He ran away from all this. He got away from this. Um, but you have all these unresolved issues because he is missing. You know, I think Chris is... I think Chris is a very dangerous guy because I don't think he realizes how much has been stored up inside of him, which is why he has this totally unexpected reaction to the scene in Rebel. Um, I wish he had pursued the gentleman caller scene. He might have had a better time with it. I think the acting teacher had good instincts for him there. Uh, and I think, yeah, you're right. I think he picks this Rebel scene because he just thinks, oh, cool, James Dean, I get to do this. This is great. Way more dangerous scene for him because it forces him to get in touch with these emotions that he's not ready to express. Glass Menagerie is also explicitly a memory play. It's a memory play, yeah. And memory, Forcing you to conjure up whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Memory is a big deal on this show. It's a big deal to these characters. The memory of Dickie Moltisanti, the memory of the old days, the memory of the old school. So a lot of great parallels there. I really liked your guys' read on, on all that. And then he gets the James Dean scene. I, I, I felt, I have to mention, I felt a little pity for Adriana. Um, between Visiting Day and... Her telling Chris, I like you as an actor, she really just cannot, is not a good judge of talent. <laughs> she, no, she's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, I feel for her. She's sweet, but she just does not have that ability that she thinks she has in spotting good talent. It's sweet that she believes in the man she loves, and I, 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 I think that's an endearing quality, but it's just... You know, it's like somebody who loves cooking, but no one likes to eat what they make. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We brought this up in our dissection of a hit is a hit, but, um, you know, it's it's one thing to be talented. It's another thing to recognize talent, and both of them are neither, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, but they, they can't get away from their fascination with it. Yeah, it's true. It is sad. And also, like you, Chris, I was thinking, oh, you know, she doesn't quite get it. But also, yeah, she she cares about him. She loves him. She went through the process of getting this thoughtful gift for him. And at the end, sadly, in that emotional state with him not wanting to be vulnerable or accept much of this, he even lashes out at her. What do you know about it? Writing down orders at the fucking restaurant, Mm. I think. And that's kind of the end for them in that episode. She doesn't want to talk to him anymore. Let's talk about this scene, the Rebel Without a Cause scene. He performs it, and... I. I feel like they had to have been playing this for humor. We get the end of this guy Omar's monologue. You know, it's all dissolved, everything dissolved. And um, he says, that's it, that's the end. <laughs> and then she's like, no, 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 you just say scene. And then we, uh, I liked that, that he's just, you know, these guys have no clue. They're they're all inexperienced actors. It, they nail a lot of this, the, the vibe of being in a class like that. And the teacher does, the actress playing the teacher does a really nice job with all this too. And then they call up the rebel without a cause scene. And I, this is such a trivial thing to comment compared to the rich theme and and story that we're talking about here. But I did want to give somebody on the sound team of The Sopranos props. This is, Chris mentions that early on when he's late, that he trafficked the tunnel. So this is clearly a little theater somewhere in this New York City area. And the sound designers nailed this. The room tone in this theater for this Rebel Without a Cause scene, there's car horns in the background. It's loud. You can hear the city traffic. And I have never once worked in a theater 
in the like off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway New York City scene where you can't hear a ton of fucking outside noise Absolutely. at all times. That is such a real thing. You cannot get a theater space under 100 seats in New York City that does not have a massive amount of noise coming from outside. So Absolutely. I, 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 that yeah. was a beautiful touch. Someone knew what the fuck they were doing, and I noticed it. So thank you. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we get the scene, and Chris... Um, you know, look, are any of these people going to win a Tony Award with the scene? Probably not. But, uh, you know, Chris connects in a way that the others do not hear. And it's a raw moment. And Chris is able to bring up tears. And they're all just like in awe of the fact that he was able to cry. How'd you get yourself to cry, man? Yeah. So what do we make of the performance here, The Rebel Without a Cause? Uh, you know, certainly a much different result than if you had got the scene where uh, uh, that asshole Buzz dives off the cliff. Or <laughs> Not even any dialogue in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Oh yeah, that little phone that call exchange. is very funny. Yeah, the knife fight. Then <laughs> it is nice. It's it's interesting to see uh, Chris in this space. How he draws on that. I think a natural ability, and then getting it. Tim Van Patten does a great job with the reaction of the class mm. because when Chris first starts crying, I think he sort of buried his face in his dad's like shin, mm. um, and then you see him come up. And then I think the first, you know, tip that there's something that he can't handle here because he doesn't he doesn't lash out and smack the guy in that scene. But when they start asking him questions about it, he just storms out of the room. Yeah. It's a little so it's a little bit it's the culmination of this space being this interesting place for him, but also where it's a bit much. Uh, it was it was a very interesting scene to watch. Uh Paul, great read on that. Uh, I mean, it's the it's the same for me. He just he there's the great reaction from the class, and then there's, like, two great Christopher performances going on at the same time. It's a great performance of the Rebel Without a Cause scene, and it's a great, like, discovery of emotion scene that is being played by Michael Imperioli in terms of, like, I'm crying. Why am I crying, right? There's, like, delays. There's beat work going on in that scene that there's no way they found in rehearsal. You know, it's just happening live in the moment. The other actors reacting to it, they don't know that he's going to be crying. Is everything okay with Chris? He's still doing the scene. And Imperially has real tears in his eyes. You can tell that, like, yeah, Christopher has just gone through something. I think the actress playing Judy next to him just looks at him right after the scene stops. and's like, it's amazing or really good job. She says something to him like, wow, I was, like, everyone was kind of taken aback. Yeah, and then, of course, he, he runs away. He's not, he's not ready to answer the question he was just asked. How'd you get yourself to cry? I can't answer that. And then the next scene we have with this A-B exercise, which I, look, I'm not running it. If it works for other acting teachers or acting students, I think this exercise is bullshit. But <laughs> they have this, they're having these conversations in A-B, A-B, and um, Chris gets one A from Mitch. And uh, to be fair, Mitch's A was a little confrontational. He like extends his hands, eyes like, A. Like he opens his eyes wide and he's like, kind of like, what's up? You know, that's the subtext of that A. And Chris just fucking decks him. Beats the shit out of him. Punches him several times. Kicks him in the ribs. Has to get pulled off. And then, again, storms out of the uh, out of the class. Uh, any thoughts on this response from Chris? And poor Mitch. This is a direct reaction to what happened during the Rebel Without a Cause scene. That's been stewing around in Chris for God knows how long. Maybe the whole week from one class to the next class. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, why I say I think Chris is an incredibly dangerous character. He doesn't realize 
how high the boil has come on those emotions mm-hmm. where he resents what he was made to feel and this person who played his father figure in the rebel without a cause scene is taking a confrontational lead in the ab scene and it just boils right up it's like tony getting a phone call he can't particularly handle right yep. that's just how how high the temper is there can't handle it and i want to mention substitutions because it's a word that is mentioned in the similar section of this episode elliot tells melfi look out for sugar and sugar substitutes substitution is a concept in acting where you need to cry for a scene you think of something you substitute what's happening in the scene for something in your own life that'll bring you to that emotional state uh and i I think it's worth mentioning emotional recall yeah Yeah, it's like emotional recall you're substituting what's happening in the scene for something in your mind that will get you to where you need to be in the scene emotionally you need to be angry you think about your dad smacking you around when you were a kid and it gets you to that place. You know, whatever, whatever the emotion that you're dredging up is. So you're substituting something in your mind. I think it's also very telling of Chris's lifestyle as a gangster that he was taken off the tanning salon job and was going to go rough up this guy in Furio's place, but Tony wanted to put his new toy to the test. So Chris was pulled off That's an outlet for Chris, the brutality of the mob life. And taking him off that job put him in a situation where he's sitting in a stock office all day, going to this acting class around rush hour or in the late afternoon, and he doesn't have the outlet of beating the shit out of somebody like he would have. So his option here is to work the class and deal with the emotions that are coming up or hit somebody. And he reverts to what he knows. He substitutes this guy for whatever else is going on, and he substitutes what he should be which should be a healthy outlet for somebody, a nice a class, taking something, a new experience, and goes back to what he knows and just beats the shit out of him. Um, I think this beating was reserved for the tanning salon guy and came out in a different way. Nice. I like that. Yeah, it's, and it's an interesting place for the episode to come to. Adriana, even with some of her readings that aren't that good, she's <laughs> at least trying to elicit something. And I think that's when Chris shouts her down. And it's also that moment where the unwise character says something that's actually quite wise about, you know, writing being about revealing your innermost feelings. If Chris, uh, you know, had the gumption to listen to her, maybe he would have got it. But neither of these characters are going to learn anything. (laughs) And uh, yeah, let's talk about the last beat of the episode. We got this soft, melancholy jazz kind of playing underneath. And we see Chris, he sits down at his couch. It's late, it's dark. Adriana's asleep or or maybe she left because of their fight. He's lights up a cigarette. Yeah, and and the the cigarette and the whole his whole physical demeanor leads you to believe he's about to sit down to write something really meaningful that maybe uh, you know his experience in acting class has led him to a place where he's comfortable to, as Paul said, bleed. Um, but he pulls up the the first script. I think he actually it's a paper script. He pulls up first the title of which I believe is "You Bark, I Bite." <laughs> <laughs> which I, I have to believe is the worst script ever written. Um, and he takes it and he, he re-examines it with what I think must be new eyes, right? Uh, looks at these pages and says, this is bullshit. Throws it out. Looks through his other papers, throws them out. Looks through his floppy disks where we imagine must be other scripts on. And by the way, very sad. There's a lot of work that's being thrown out. That's a lot. You got all that stuff saved on floppy disk. There's a lot of scripts in there. Mm. Throws them out. And then you get fooled again because then you think, all right, now he's ready to write something really great. He writes nothing. The next scene is we see him coming out into his little uh, alleyway there and throwing out all the work that he'd done. 
And uh, it's quite sad because, again, rather than bleed, he's going to protect himself. He's not going to bring these things back to the surface. Anything that he might have in terms of becoming a great artist can only be unlocked once he allows himself to remember and to feel, but he doesn't want to do either of those things. Therefore, he cannot write. I can't say it any better than that. And with that, we're at the end of this episode. Guys, any final thoughts on Big Girls Don't Cry? Ideas you, you wanted to get out there? Scenes we didn't touch on? Anything? No, I just wanted to I want to give a shout-out to all the actors. Again, to me, some of the biggest key elements in this episode are about outlets and the emotional needs of the characters. So for James Gandolfini, Lorraine Bracco, and Michael Imperioli, some really top-shelf work here. Also giving a shout-out, uh, Imperioli himself is a writer and uh, shared at one point that he had a moment, I think somewhere in the early 90s, where... He thought all of his scripts were junk, and he threw them all in the trash. Wow! And kind of so, kind of connecting to that moment. It is sad. It is bleak. Him going into that, that kind of underground, that spot where they keep the trash, and it made me feel for Chris, and wonder again, trying to put myself in the place of somebody watching this for the first time. Well, what's going to happen now? He's moved. He's pulled away from writing altogether, but he's been spiraling away from the the central aspect of the gangster world. So I was worried about the character in that last moment. For me, a sad episode. Uh, there are, of course, as always, deeply funny moments, but um, yeah, a sort of an unease throughout, an unease after viewing the episode, and it comes from the unease that the characters are feeling. Really, they should be happy. Tony is living in relative peacetime. Yeah, Richie at this point is a, a big pain in the ass, but it's manageable for the moment. Business is successful. Fiorio's over here. Things are great. Things are okay with Carmella for right now. But he's deeply unhappy, and he's very angry. Christopher, same thing. You know, the, the thing that was really unpleasant for him, this tanning salon business, okay, he doesn't have to do it anymore. Mm. Adriana loves him. He's got a good life. He has a job. He doesn't really have to work. He has money. Uh, you know, he could be happy, but he's not. It's this deep dissatisfaction, and, and you get the feeling that it lives within them, and it's this thing that wakes up, and it wakes up unexpectedly and with terrible force. Mm. And unless these things are dealt with, they'll destroy them. And unfortunately, because big girls don't cry, that's the more likely scenario. And they all have a lot of work to do. I remember stopping this episode thinking my god they all need therapy they all need acting class they all need to just like go on a retreat for two years and just go to museums and and read the great books <laughs> but yeah they're of course not going to do that and let's include melfi in that we've said how many times in the show she'd be better off without seeing tony mm. she should kind of take elliot's advice here as much as we don't like him just say listen quit while you're ahead this guy's gone yeah work out your own thing but she can't well, boys, it's been a pleasure as always. I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And we will see you next time. Hopefully you happily wander back to our podcast. I see for, what I did there. Yeah, you see what I did? Yeah, for cool. the happy wanderer. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thank you. I got myself a girl.